Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're going to be hosting the .NET Developer Days Conference in Warsaw, Poland, October 23rd through the 25th. Developer Days is one of the largest events in Central and Eastern Europe dedicated to application development on the .NET platform. And we'll be recording a number of shows from the conference and hanging out with you. And early bird pricing ends August 31st. So go to developerdays.pl and get your tickets now. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here Zooming and Skyping and microphoning and doing that podcast thing that we've done for 1,651 shows. Yeah. Well, I've only done 1,551 or so. <laughs> only. I'm the new guy. Only. But I'm I'm a little surrounded by dogs today, actually. You know, the old, the old man, Zach, is sleeping on one side, but I have a loner dog. Friends are out of town, so... I have Robbie as well, so ah. we might have some barks. Dog sitting. Yeah, but dog, you know, Zach's old enough now that I can go upstairs, get another cup of tea, come back down. He doesn't move. Wow. But Robbie follows me up and follows me back down. Young dog. Yeah, well, she's nine. She's not that young. Okay. I think the question is, is Zach actually smart enough now that he knows not to bother moving, or is he just so old that he slept through the whole thing? Hey, uh, I got something for uh, Better Know Framework that probably a lot of you guys know about, but I'm, you know in the dark but uh, we'll see roll the music all right all right dude hit me what do you got you ever heard of plex tv you've been using it for years and years yeah see this is what i figured everybody's been using these cool things but me so plex.tv is a it's a it's an app it's a website it's a service it allows you to do just about everything with all of your media anywhere on any device. Mm-hmm. So it uh, not only does it aggregate live TV, over-the-air TV, you know, web content, TV shows like from Amazon, uh, yeah, that kind of thing, but you can connect it to your media and then access your media, whatever that is, movies, videos, photos, music from anywhere on any device, and it's all free. You know where I got, I came over to this when um, Windows Media Server died. Yeah, yeah, right? I remember Windows Media like, Server. Remember that you, back in the old days where uh, when Replay TV and TiVo and all that stuff was brand new, and it wasn't only stored in the U.S., so I had a, a Linux instance that would spoof the replay TV to think it was communicating with their servers, but instead was feeding Canadian data into it. So I was recording TV shows off my cable with it. But then I was able to pull those into Windows Media Server because there's a great UI for we all of that. We talked about that on your first appearance on .NET Rocks, my friend. Quite possibly, yeah. It's a long time ago. Yeah. And and so, but when it when it died, when it went away, I, I switched to Plex. And Plex was in the early days was rough. Right. But uh, it's a much more refined product today. And it, but it came from TV. They moved into movies and music and mm. podcasts. It's, and then when the mobile wave came, it, its claim to fame was that you could stream your server stuff into your phone. I just It's one of these things, you know, I'm, I'm not a very, I, I don't spend a lot of time watching videos. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I play music, but... Um, it tends to be limited. Like I don't just like say I, I'm going to go listen to something new today. 
Do you know? So I'm not I'm not always in a media server. Like I'm not always watching no. stuff. So I just totally missed it. I missed out yeah. on that whole thing. But it's pretty cool. And it is definitely of all of the different there was a ton of products in this space, and there probably still are, and I'm sure we'll hear people going, Well, I can't believe you're using that when you could be using X. Right. Um, but it has come to dominate, you know, and it really is pretty big. Cool. Well, I learned something today. There you go. <laughs> so who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, I grabbed a comment off a show 1155, which is from June of 2015, uh, talking about performance tuning in Azure with uh, Christopher Benage. Uh, I know yep. we're going to talk a little performance tuning today. It's mm. kind of inevitable. And uh, this particular comment comes from Prasad, who said, one thing I've observed is that people take underperforming code and put it on Azure, add more instances of compute and expect it to perform better. Yeah. Azure does scale, but it can only scale underperforming code that is deployed on it. Uh, it's a little unfair to expect Azure to compensate for underperforming code. I've seen well-written apps ca catering to 500 transactions per second with a single instance. I think people should tune their code and then leverage Azure to tune further and auto-scale. Yeah. Which is fair. You know, I think you should probably go into the cloud in the first place just because there's a whole lot of problems that go away when you don't have to own the machine in the OS. Right. But uh, beyond that, you know, scaling is a tricky thing. But being in the cloud doesn't automatically guarantee you're going to scale. Certainly not. Certainly not. And it doesn't, no substitution for good instrumentation to actually understand what's going on. So, Prasad, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .net rocks com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. I just found out about Twitter last week. <laughs> hey, one more thing on that particular comment, uh, that particular show. Yeah. There was another comment there. I actually referenced New Zealand, but that's not important. But then there was another comment related to that comment. It talked about a problem in Brazil, hmm. they, that there was a data center in Brazil and they were having performance problems and so forth. And I ended up, the guy, the fellow involved, his name was Nathan Vivo. And we ended up going back and forth on it a bit. And I ultimately, what he was describing and the thing, different things we did, it sounded like a real problem. And I ultimately escalated it to Scott Guthrie. Really? And they found a flaw in the configuration of Azure in Brazil. Holy. The networking God. configuration was incorrect. And it was Nathan who, who, who really started the path to finding it. See, we do, we do provide a service, Richard. <laughs> well, and it's funny, you know, you don't just casually escalate to Mr. Guthrie. No, you don't. But I mean, I've worked with him for a while. We were trying some different things. And I'm like, you know, this seems wrong. And I finally went over to 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 ping Scott about it. And he's like, send me the content info. I want to talk about this. And and he jumped in hmm. and handed off. And it, you got to think when the network guys, when Goo shows up and right. says, we need to look at this. <laughs> like everybody dropped everything. But it wasn't, it was a misconfiguration. Like it was a real thing. Wow. Well done flashbacks to years ago mm. well uh let's bring on jd john daniel trask is the co-founder and ceo of mindscape creators of the popular raygun io error tracking software uh, jd is a microsoft aspnet mvp he's been writing software for more than 20 years he lives in new zealand where richard was born and also like richard and myself enjoys a fine whiskey Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me back, guys. 
actually the company is now called Raygun as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh wow. okay. We yeah, we 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 changed the name because there were so many people using that that uh, companies were starting to get to the point where they would get their their credit card bills and be like, "Who the hell is this Mindscape? We don't even know what that is." We, we you know, they knew about Raygun. Um, the, the the product got so popular that uh, it ended up sort of dwarfing the company name, so we changed it over. It's all called Raygun now. So it actually became the company. Are you are you guys in Auckland or is there elsewhere in New Zealand to be? Yeah, we're we're based out of Wellington. Um, both both. So Wellington's the second largest city and is the capital of the country. Um, and it's also got quite a good tech hub here. So Auckland mm-hmm. certainly has a big tech scene as well. Um, but I find that Wellington feels quite um, tech entrepreneurial uh, down down this way a little bit more. My experience down there is that it's kind of the worst weather I've seen in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, you know what's great about that is when you're coding, you don't go outside. Yeah, you don't actually <laughs> want to go outside because it's crappy out. Or, you know, you're up on the sunny north end. It's like, why are we inside? <laughs> what is the finest whiskey you have tasted lately? Ooh, recently, um, I had a... a Belvini, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it might have been a 21 year, mm. um, and I'm trying to remember much. Like I say, I, usually when I'm when I'm drinking, I have hazy memories afterwards. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I quite like anything from uh, uh, Belvini anyway. Um, yeah. I did have something amazing uh, recently as well, but um, I do forget the name of it. I could recognize it, and it was it was one of these sort of very rare. Um, uh, sort of side brands from from one of the major labels. Mm. It's quite difficult to get. It was delicious. If I if I remember the name, I'll send you the link. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get Richard on the whiskey topic, or we'll never uh, talk about performance that, tuning. That will be the show, which will also consume uh, Richard's uh, uh, attention. So let's just jump right in. Performance uh, tuning, performance as a feature. Mm-hmm. Nobody's debating. Absolutely yeah. not. I think we're done. We well, can talk about whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what. I see debate uh, a little bit uh, around it in that it's not uncommon for me to see other folks that are maybe running software companies that don't necessarily come from an engineering background mm. um, that don't fully appreciate the impact of poor performing software, right? Mm-hmm. And you see the engineers, they they might be sitting there getting frustrated uh, but I often find that they they struggle to maybe pitch the broader business on why they should invest that way and why it matters. Um, but I often also sit there looking at the data, and I, I do have a, a web page up here from from Google, you know, citing all these statistics. Like, uh, you know, BBC found that they lost ten percent of users for every extra second the site takes to load, or you know, Pinterest got fifteen percent more traffic um, by reducing the the load the perceived load time by forty percent. These are the sorts of things that, frankly, you know, boards of directors should be going. Well, how you know how are we trying to grow faster? And they throw a lot of money at that sort of uh, problem. Yeah. But there's some sort of divide, right, that often exists where uh, you know we we all use software and most of it is pretty slow. Um, you know, and you you sit there wondering why, and that's why I consider it like a bug. It's, it puts people off using the software, re- reduces yeah, I think trust. it's very fair. I th- and I'm of two minds of this as to why business owners resist this. One is that devs like performance tuning. Like there's a certain personality that really enjoys squeezing the, the minuscule bits out of it. And that makes them nervous because <laughs> it doesn't look like a feature. It just looks like tinkering. 
Mm-hmm. And and often you can do you can do performance tuning and beat yourself up and you know optimize code that does not have a meaningful net benefit to the business. Like I think that that mindset of how are we how are we going to show to non technical people how making this site faster or improving performance on X actually benefit the company? Like it starts with measuring in the first place to know how well you're doing before you started tuning. Absolutely. And, you know, I, frankly, I put that a little bit on on vendors like ourselves is that if mm-hmm. the tooling and, and support around that is not telling the story. So, for example, the data that, that Google will put out there, you, you know that these comes from teams of, uh, you know, um, BI professionals and data analysts at Pinterest working with probably similar type people over at Google to, to put this together. Well, not everybody's Google and Pinterest, right? They don't have armies of data folks that are building these stories. And so the tools often aren't actually being uh, articulating their value in terms of business when, you know, you got more customers because of this, you saved this much money. They kind of just go, well, here's your median load time. It's like, so what? You know, like, yeah, which doesn't doesn't help you at all. Business narrative. Absolutely. So that, that's, that's on. On everybody in, in in these these spaces, um, absolutely. And and you know, just as a as a note, coming back, you were talking about the um, you know deploying onto Azure, and people expecting that to just fix performance. Um, For and sure, we, we're seeing that a lot as well from a bunch of folks that put, uh, particularly is it is it Azure websites, um, the the scale out more of a PaaS sort of offering, and almost everybody we talk to seems to be using the smallest possible instances there, <laughs> yeah. thinking that they're going to like match the curve really nicely, yeah, um, yeah. and and not actually doing any analysis. To say, well, actually, the problem is is that 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 leaves you no headrooms, you know, time for things to change and all that. And, and a lot of them are struggling with that, but they really do not want to move off that bottom tier uh, because it's meant to just expand. Um, <laughs> and right. it's, a, it's part of their own bottleneck, right? But it does come down to if you don't have good instrumentation, you can't justify any of this. And, and more relevantly, as soon as you do have good instrumentation, all of this becomes easier. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the story, you know, you, you won't believe this, but when we, we launched a, um, our APM product uh, late last year, um, and believe it or not, this was a software project that wasn't delivered on time. Um, but part of dun, the reason dun, it wasn't. Dun, dun, dun. I can't imagine. But, How did such a thing happen? <laughs> Never heard of that before. <laughs> Goodness knows. Well, the bit that was crazy was part of the reason it took us uh, a little bit. I, I think we we're about six months over, but um, the reason it partly took so long was as the team were building it and, and they were then, we have a fair bit of instrumentation. We're putting it into our own software and monitoring that to, you know, eat our own dog food. And it was mm-hmm. like, Oh man, there's some there's some really poor N plus one careers over here. I'll, ju- I'll just go and fix that for a second, and then I'll get back to working on what I'm meant to be doing. And mm. it was sort of highlighting all these things, and it it, it really um, it it did just highlight that if you can't uh, see almost all of the state of the system while it's in motion, um, it's very difficult to figure out where some of the uh, the performance bottlenecks are. Um, you know, it's very easy to to do things like you know don't use link inside of a tight loop that's running right. you know, a million times a second. That's mm-hmm. really obvious. Um, mm-hmm. But when you're talking about say distributed services and all these different things, it gets very very hard. And partly because it's almost impossible to replicate the load profile on say your dev machine versus what it's looking like in production. So you've you've sure. got to kind of do a quote unquote test in production, right? Now you you're conflicted here because you are both an owner slash CEO 
and a dev. So <laughs> you've yeah, just I'm- described your 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 developer employees doing something that I would have fought against as a manager, which was inline optimization during development. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm much more of a build it, get it running, pu- prove the feature set. Now figure out what you need to optimize to get it to the performance level. Do you do you do you think that way, or where where do you fall on that position? Um, I I take things with uh, a little bit of a. I guess I'm a, a, a bit more pragmatic about it. You know, if if somebody spots an issue and it's affecting, say, 300 customers would have a better experience and it's going to take a you know, couple of hours to fix it, um, that's a bigger win in my mind uh, than, say, managing to deploy a product a day earlier. Um, sure. So Although you're talking at that to, point about ship code impacting customers, and I'm with you, especially when yep. you can box it so neatly as a couple of hours. But I thought when you were first describing this, it's literally like as they were doing the build and seeing like some N plus one type problems that you know are going to have big performance issues as they grow, they would fix that then, whether or not they knew it would have an impact on customers. They, oh, no, no. Under this case, they're doing it with with the the data about customer impact. So in this scenario that I was using was an example of um, beta testing or alpha testing in this case, the APM product on the raygun.com application, you know, mm. uh, as we were going. So it's entirely internal, but they had the data to back it up. Um, right. I'm personally more of the view that it's it's better to try and optimize um, earlier rather than later. And Interesting. The, that's a, I, I, I have to qualify it slightly by the nature of our product. So Raygun today processes uh, can be as high as 500 million requests an hour through the platform. Um, So something taking a little bit longer can have significant costs to us. That's not a normal software project though, right? Uh, It's not a login form. I would also think that you're an instrumentation tool and nobody's willing to give you any cycles to do your instrumentation. Right. Under that scenario, we see that a little bit as well, a wee bit from from customers. Do you mean cycles in terms of developer time or compute cycles as in we want no overhead? Well, also, but resources consumed, right? Like nobody thinks about the overhead of the 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 instrumentation itself no they don't and in fact you know i won't name names but when we were analyzing some of the stuff uh when we were prepping to build we know of one vendor that literally tries to subtract what they think their overhead is oh nice um and therefore if you actually married up server logs to what their product was saying is that they're wildly different numbers (laughs) um we don't believe in that but we we sort of have to explain to folks uh say it you know it's not a sales pitch, but we're in three product categories of crash reporting, RUM, and APM. Now, crash reporting is not really much overhead because it only does something if something blows up, right? You're already in a shitty experience. It's not much to wait yeah. for. Yeah, performance at this point doesn't matter. We've already failed. Yeah, absolutely. Real user monitoring is sending from the user end because you're measuring user experience, right? So that's kind of like the overhead of, say, Google Analytics being on a page, right? It's going to send a bit of data back, but it can be asynchronous. That's not a big deal. APM, though, where you're running uh, either agents or extensions or whatever on a machine and it's effectively running a profile or an analyzing everything, they can have quite significant overheads. For um, sure. You know, uh, when we started out, you know, it would easily be, say, 100% overhead. Okay, well, obviously no one's going to install that. Um, that's going to make so people sad. Le- yeah, and that's when we went out and started benchmarking across different 
different players and we were like, okay, well, who's the, who's best in class and how do we beat that number? Um, and typically what we're seeing in that sort of APM space is that you can expect about a 10% uh, overhead um, for, for trying to capture the level of information that, that an APM product would. Um, so it does come at a cost. For production APM, I think that's a great number. I've seen far yeah, worse. That, Keep in mind, best of class. <laughs> I've seen a lot worse too. Um, it's kind of like you know, if you if you install a profiler, uh, let's say, take the JetBrains ones are my tool of choice, but I know folks at Redgate and that build them as well. Um, you know, everybody's done that sneaky install that on a prod server at some point and try it out. Now that's obviously not optimized for trying to capture every request and all that, and you see that overhead is really sky high trying to capture those traces at that point, um, but. You know, something that's always on has to be has to be quite low. Yeah, or it's going to be turned off. Like I perform, I improve the performance of the app by taking away the performance monitor. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we we hear uh, occasionally from uh, you know from people as they'll not not <laughs> not about our product so far, <laughs> but you know saying hey yeah if that's the answer that's a huge problem. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> turn off that that pesky reporting. <laughs> yeah. yeah but on the flip side all these tools again coming back to the original point they are trying to arm the engineers the the devops people or whatever you want to call them with the data to hopefully present a bit of a business case about things um you know even if it's not about hey the load time impacts these people you might simply be like hey well, we could stop using you know 10 extra servers here what's that going to cost us yeah especially when we get into cloud where we're built by compute to be able to dial that back Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's super important. I'm going to presume your APM product, like which I haven't used, similar to other APM products which I have used, which is that use that combination of frequently called and consuming significant resources that you sort of bubble up those those particular methods or those particular calls and have that combination of we do this a lot and we it takes a while. Yeah, so we, we do we do that absolutely. Um, something we do that's a little bit different, and this might you know, there's always the joke that um, what is it that the best developers are the laziest developers because they oh, always absolutely. try to automate everything away. Um, and in a way, that's 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 kind of true here. And that one of the things we've done is is put it and say, well, rather than just saying, hey, the chart moved in a direction, um, why, and then have to sift through a mountain of data. Um, we kind of do what's effectively like a almost imagine a static analysis, but at runtime, and that the performance traces come through, and that's where we can do automatic detection of things like, you know, n plus one um, uh, slow external API calls and things like that, um, to then just say, here's a list of issues. These are the performance problems that we have found in your code while it's running in production. Go and fix these things. This would be the impact. Um, the other thing we've we've tried to do, and this is more of a move with technology, is Capture at the method level, you know. Um, I personally don't find particularly useful tools that say your session took three minutes. There was five queries in here; um, they took a few seconds each, and you pretend like the code had no actual overhead, even though it was the bulk of the time. Um, right. That's not very useful. Um, and so we actually give a full flame chart of here's every method, how that's executing, um, and and you can very quickly identify. Uh, it, issues in your in your code base there uh, like illogical ways of calling things that just lead to a, a giant explosion in compute time yeah that being said it's usually the query's fault that's why we hate dbas <laughs> <laughs> oh wait did i say that out loud that's not right 
<laughs> we we well as a slight war story we, we fixed a query the other day uh, ourselves where we had one customer they have a lot of data and it was taking 23 seconds to execute the database query and then we found that uh if we if we did the order function in code it, it made the query the query dropped to about 800 milliseconds and the overall time was barely more than that and for whatever reason putting the order by into the actual database query led the optimizer to do something really kooky um, that blew out the, yeah. <laughs> the response. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting just how much querying these days is generated by various ORMs or data abstraction tools. And so tools like this that lead us to the queries that are causing pain is like, well, nobody wrote this query. This query was written by a tool. Mm-hmm. And I may know his name. And so now this like, should we write a store procedure around this and do and allow the DBA to optimize it better and then change our code to reflect that? Like I think that's a super healthy conversation when they're both, you know, when I have a good tool like this where we can both be on the same sides of things. You're not blaming the database versus blaming the code. Absolutely. And I, I mean I can uniquely speak to this and that the first product that our company built was an ORM called Lightspeed that was quite popular. Um in particular uh, and compete against EF because it generated substantially uh, more efficient queries. And these days, you know, uh, with with the Raygun product, um, I've kind of fallen back slightly that I think ORMs are, are fantastic productivity tools, but um, I, I still haven't kind of come up with what is the ideal pattern for a blended system that says, you know, yeah, but there's all of these points where you need escape hatches or you do want to be yeah. able to finally tune. And yes, you know, ORMs often will have that ability to wrap a stored proc or something and, and work in that way. But that still feels like an unnatural sort of merging of, of two approaches. I haven't seen a particularly clean solution for when performance matters do this, when no. it's kind of irrelevant. I think it's an exception case and it should be an exception case and it's worth, and if you don't have that exception, then you're really going to Absolutely, hurt. absolutely. We talk a lot about that when we're building dev tools of what is the escape hatch. You know, it's great to take people down the path, but, you know, a couple of percent of the time you, you don't, you don't want to go down that path for often very good reasons. So how do I get out of that? Yeah. No, it's a, it's an interesting problem, and I I do appreciate that tooling helps us uh, be on the same side of the problem rather than blaming each other for the problem. Like I kind of like what you're doing here with sort of here's the things I think you should work on, because then you look at then you present that list to everybody that's involved in performance tuning, which is going to be some ops guys and it's going to be some DBAs and so forth, and you argue about the list rather than argue whose fault it is. Oh, absolutely. And inevitably what I find with performance uh, issues, and I guess this is this is the same as bugs, um, you know, is, is nobody sitting out to write a bug. No one's sitting out to write no. something that's dog slow, right? Um, it's usually is a case of, well, I built it on my dev machine. I'm running on a bare metal locally with one user attached with some small amount of test data, you know, and then we put it in production with thousands of users and customers with millions and millions of data points. And guess what? It's not quite as good as it was on my machine. Mm. Um, so that's that's often a, a challenge too. So I find like, I don't know why it is that bugs feel like something you would blame more than performance issues, but they both actually come from the same yeah. place. <laughs> Well, and, and bugs are blamed on devs. Absolutely. Yep. Right? Because it's a they, that's where the name's associated with it. So they, when recognize that everybody's attached to performance, that everybody cares about performance, that all of us are metriced on performance, then it's a much more inclusive thing. Yeah, it's kind of like a, um, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle there as well. You know, yeah. you're making stuff 
stuff better. It wasn't that it was necessarily broken. It just got nicer. Um, so yeah. I, I, when I made my living doing helping companies do performance tuning, I always opened with, with congratulations, you had a good, you have a good problem. If nobody was using your app, it would work great. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely, that's absolutely cor- correct. Um, that, very similar to the line I bust out when, uh, whenever I'm having sales calls and whatever the communication technology doesn't work, and I say, you know, hey, if it wasn't for software faults, we wouldn't even have a business. So <laughs> it works well right. for us. <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally true. We we do we battle a little bit internally about some of this stuff as well. Like for example. Okay, we've got all these bugs. It integrates with the source control system. We can absolutely do it. Get blame on the lines of code. We can figure out exactly who we should probably auto-assign that to. And we do have some folks that say to us, well, I'd really like to be able to then build reports from on my team. And I'm like, I can kind of, I, I absolutely can understand why management might want to do that. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that that's a positive lens to put on it. Um, yeah. You know, and I've been thinking, like, could it be more that you do things like leaderboards on who's fixing things or who's actually, you know, doing positive behavior or exhibiting positive behaviors and try and track on that? Otherwise, we'd never sell our product anyway because it goes in through devs. And, you know, if it was to have the features that said, by the way, it's going to basically hang you, there's an issue. Yeah. Um, Here's why you didn't get your bonus this quarter. Well, I, I talk like I talk about this a little bit when we do have sales conversations with folks that are in uh, management, in particular the C-suite, uh, and and usually around the the crash reporting is to say, look, um, firstly, uh, you'll probably never get to zero. You know, that's not that's not a uh, where you're going to get to here. Um, bugs no. are a fact of life. You know, um, and yeah. so there's an education part that we have to take take on to ensure that they they aren't expecting perfection from their teams. In much the way their teams can't expect perfection from management. Yeah, yeah, it's only fair, right? It works works yep. both ways. And exactly. uh, I'm going to interrupt for just this one moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. Richard and I are asking for your support in two ways. First, we'd like each and every one of you to share your love of .NET Rocks with your friends on social media. The more people listen to our show, the more likely we are to stay on the air. Secondly, please become a patron by signing up at patreon.netrocks.com. We don't care if it's only five bucks a month. Help us pay the bills so we can keep coming back week after week with more great content. We'd like to get back to two shows per week, but it's just not in the cards yet. So help us get there. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell and Carl Franklin. I'm still here. .net rocks. <laughs> <laughs> He's still here. And we're talking to J.D. Trask about performance tuning, which, I mean, for better or worse, I mean, I built a startup company and sold it around performance tuning websites. I have strong opinions in this area. And, you know, our ability to sell the product radically transformed when we stopped selling it to IT and dev folks and we started selling it to uh, VP of sales. Yep. Because that basic message of faster websites sell more stuff, that worked for a VP of sales and it didn't work near as well for anybody else. So, you know, back to your original message here, JD, it's just this this reality that performance in product makes money. Absolutely. And frankly, I know that, you know, Google is a little bit of the privacy boogeyman in a way, not quite as bad as Facebook, but um, the the best thing for everybody that uses the web 
has been not, you know, Google search was was obviously a first big win, was when they came out and said, we are going to start including your site performance as a ranking factor. Right. And that has driven so much interest in products like we sell or any performance stuff, because suddenly like marketing teams are saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, this is totally screwing us if, mm. our, if our sites are all slow. Um, right. And suddenly the, the businesses are starting to, to really care about that because obviously you could keep shoveling money to Google um, for ads, but even then, if your site's slow, they're going to start charging you more for the ads when people click through because they're going to bounce because it's a shitty experience, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the costs just go up across the board. Um, so that's been a huge win and effectively is, I guess, the evolution of exactly what your experience was was there, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 all the same thing. And I've, I've included a link to, to Google's uh, Why Performance Matters doc just because it is that kind of analysis that it can equate to money. And it's I think it's how – technical this is reference material for how technical people can pitch on performance although it seems like it's getting easier because of things like seo where you are seeing marketing and sales care about performance and want to and want to get more of it and and yep. certainly provide resources to devs to make it true one of the things we've started to run into a little bit as well and this is particularly around the the, the rum products and measuring customer performance as we get folks asking if they can um manipulate the definition of you know poor good great uh and what we we say uh, a piece of software is operating like right um, and i end up having these these great debates with folks that say well we're building an erp system so you know 30 seconds is totally acceptable for our customers and i was like no it's not and they're like no no you don't understand it's b2b and it's like wait wait you know, the, the B2C people are the people that then go to work, you know, like they don't suddenly decide 30 second load times are a great experience. And it's like, no, but there's a lot of data. And it's like, well, I'm pretty sure Google's searching a boatload of data as well. You know, that's coming back in 300 milliseconds. Like, you know, like stop making excuses for your shitty software. Um, nobody likes it. Well, doesn't this tooling just as easily define the fact that you're you're under provisioning an app as much as the code is struggling to do things or we're fetching more data than we require. Yeah. So that's where you sort of just effectively triangulate between things like uh, uh, CPU and memory and an area that we're starting to, to see, and we've been affected by this ourselves. That's not reported on so well is usually uh, network bandwidth. Yeah. I think that's to me, that's the only real constrained resource these days. The wire is still the weak point. Absolutely. As well as with a lot of the cloud vendors, if you're not using particular uh, instances, you may find that it's burstable. So you deploy something, you know, you're processing a lot of data, it looks great, and then 20 minutes later, it, you know, it hits the bricks. Um, and you're like, what the hell just happened in here? And I don't personally find that uh, any of the cloud providers actually are particularly upfront about the limitations or behaviors of their network adapters um, and how they're going to, to change over time. Um, they just kind of say, oh, this is rated to one gig. And it's like, yeah, but for how long, how sustained and all of that stuff. And the other thing that's yeah. bizarre. Can I actually pump a gig through that? 24 hours a day because I'm betting no. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, and I don't know, this, this sort of changes with time as technology improves. But the other bit that I find confusing sometimes with uh, network limiting um, issues is that I think it's particularly tied to virtualized environments, which obviously the, the cloud is. 
um, is that often you'll see it manifest more in high CPU utilization as well as it's trying to, I'm assuming, you know, marshal and manage, you know, some sort of um, buffers and, and various things. And that can be confusing because then you're thinking, well, is it my code that's just slow? Because the right. CPU is going up um, and, and you forget to kind of check the network itself. So I find having to triangulate like server monitoring and code monitoring is how you figure out where does this actually lie. Yeah, it's it's not like the code suddenly shows up as in being network constrained. Like a, a sign doesn't pop out to say that's the case. You just sort of hit this wall and you're wondering why you're not going any faster. And you can spend a lot of time tinkering with code that doesn't do a thing for you. Yeah. Now, this is something that folks will probably say, this is untrue, JD. You just haven't been paying attention, which is probably true. But it's kind of like these days, if I'm on Windows, let's say, just to consume a machine and I'm looking in Task Manager and it's quite cool these days versus, say, in the past where um, with all of the turbo boosting and speed stepping and goodness knows what, that they'll actually sort of, you can see that number changing around of what kind of the, the CPU could be operating at. Um, but you don't really see that happening on, uh, well, I haven't seen it happening when you're talking about networks and, and things like that, because you don't really kind of get the state of that updating all the time, which when you do have these burstable NICs and things um, can make it very confusing. For sure. Yeah, and I think NIC constraint is just not not as not as visible a problem. And throwing more cloud at it. So are you seeing you get different NICs depending on what instances in places like Azure and AWS give you? Yeah, so you yeah, so usually and they're starting to change this. So some of them now are making the the network adapter a configurable option, kind of like the disk. Um, right. and that seems to be where the where it's going. But um, more historically was that you'd say, Hey, well, if I'm gonna buy, say, a, a medium instance at this level, that's gonna come with a a ten one hundred, you know, spec'd kind of network card. And then the next level up be at a gig, but that's where it might only be for a particular throughput loads and things like that, um, for for periods of time because it's burstable to those peaks. And then you actually have to go up another level to make it a sustained um uh, you know, uh, a level in there. So um it's just it it's all improving. It's just a little confusing. Yeah, and, and they're all virtual NICs anyway, right? <laughs> so, you know, figuring out what yeah. you actually have and, and what your actual performance is is still an interesting question. And I do, I've, I mean, it was a few years ago now, but I do really enjoy reading a lot of those sort of uh, Windows and, and uh, Linux internal type blog posts where people dive into, I think there was one for, for Windows Server a while ago um, about how, hey, well, now that we're starting to want to drive, say, 40 gigabit per second network throughput, you know, how do we, um, I think there was around moving the the network handling out of the out of kernel mode or something like that to try and improve throughput and hearing about the stuff that these these giant cloud providers are having to drive these behaviors to improve all of the networking um you know for their data centers that stuff really gets my rocks off can you also make a case with tooling like this to to go to cdns to try and localize resources like this can you make that show well we, we can do a little bit around that by giving you down to sort of the city level geo data to see where there's issues and you can kind of see it um, if it wasn't for the if it wasn't for China really you'd, you'd almost see a, a perfect bullseye like heat map around the world if you're in one data center right to say it's getting progressively slower and that's going to kind of hint at that um, but it's not so pointed as to say hey go get a CDN. <laughs> 
And I mean, the nice thing now with the cloud is that it's not that difficult to say, okay, I'm going to incorporate, you know, let's put a CD on, in, in for a week and compare the two performance sets for certain customers. But I'm totally with you that median load times don't help you when you're trying to figure out what, what customers are having good experiences versus bad experiences by geography. That's also where it's important. And again, we're, we're building on the shoulders of giants who built you know, great, great products, say a decade ago in these spaces. Um, and there's just an improvement in resources that are allowing us to do the next level. And so a good example of that is, um, you know, take a web page. You don't want to just know the median load time, the P99, things like that, um, because you, you might say, okay, well, what's the P99 right now? Show me the, what that, what that user actually, uh, what made up that request and response. And the response has to include all of the sub-assets. So for an example that we have with our own system was that we started out, we used Gravatar for um, putting avatars in when people signed up, you know, pretty stock standard thing. But by not seeing that uh, actually Gravatar is a horribly slow service at sending you an image, um, you have to go below the top line request information and actually see that those were the assets. These were the requests, the sub-requests that were actually slowing down those pages from lo uh, loading. Um, so you've got to you've got to do that next level of data to really be able to figure out what actually impacted this. Third-party libraries in the web world, right? Heck, even <laughs> font packs from yeah. Google can burn you. Mm. Oh, absolutely. It, you know, I... I remember back in the day it was that uh, the google search console or something would give you these recommendations and it would straight up tell you you know the google analytics script is slow your google tag manager is slow <laughs> you're like but this is you guys like fix it um that's always blowing my mind um you're also getting me dangerously close to talking about um front-end development uh, which is another area that's driving a whole lot of adoption around real user monitoring is that, um, yeah, you know, it's easy to write uh, slow stuff on the server. Um, but what we are seeing more and more and more is that uh, for most people, the servers are responding fine. It's the, you know, eight megabytes of JavaScript that then takes 12 seconds to composite the web page and you know it scares to be honest it scares the bejesus out of me when i hear things like we should stop using css files and start using it through javascript and you're like why this you know this is just penalizing your customer like the amount of time lost on the on the client side render these days mm. absolutely dwarfs most requests on the server side uh for overhead well, wow, that's part of our original conversation back in the day about web performance tuning was let's look at latency before we start talking about server side optimization because you're making, you know, 150 round trips. And yeah, yep. each one of them was only 100 milliseconds, but it's 150 of them. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Not to mention, if I ever find the person who did the first loading spinner for fetching JavaScript assets to use an app, oh, you know, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start feeling a little stabby at that point. Uh, um, well, yeah. yeah. Have you guys gotten into instrumenting stuff like uh, Blazor and the other WebAssembly tech? Because I got to think they're going to have challenges too. Yeah, uh, honestly, no, not yet. Um, but I've been keeping an eye on the stuff that's uh, coming along with Blazor because uh, it mm. looks like a very, very cool technology. So like kind of back to your question earlier of, you know, the CEO who can code, which is both a blessing and a curse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're, <laughs> um, you're deeply conflicted. Yeah, I, 
<laughs> I spend my weekends playing around with, with, with new things. Like I am a technologist at heart and then I go to work and I'm like, no, the last thing you should be doing, JD, is writing any code. Or, you know, the, the joke kind of is, is that technical debt at Raygun is just synonymous with CEO code because like <laughs> a lot of the old stuff. <laughs> yeah. And you have to resist that impulse to talk about what you played with this weekend because you come with the CEO weight. And it's like, so we're using that now? I'm actually horribly old school on a lot of things. This comes back to the pragmatism side, you know, like, uh, again, I'll probably have a lot of people shaking their heads as they're listening to this, but I honest to God believe that one of the reasons we've managed to execute so fast on delivering three really great products is because we've just kind of gone, no, we don't need to learn Kubernetes. We don't need the stuff. We can just basically put stuff out there onto these instances, set up things like auto scaling, not have to retrain the entire team, not waste all of this time. Um, I, I can't, I've lost count of how many people want to put that stuff in place uh, and then just end up having to spend many, many, many months of, of people time just trying to then manage that stuff. Um, On plumbing. That doesn't seem like really a plumbing. win. Yeah. You know, I'll wait till it's boring and old and it's kind of like, yeah, you can run two commands and it's pretty much rock solid. Um, and I know that's right. where it's getting to with things like uh, the managed services from the cloud providers. But in a way, we've been a little bit of a Luddite on that front. Um, while we have been very aggressive at adopting things like .NET Core, um, because that gives us some wonderful performance wins, you know, being able to use the, the Linux machines and things. And we do have a case study with Microsoft where we we converted off a Node.js API layer onto, um, uh, I think it was .NET Core 1.1 at the time, um, where we got about a 2,000% throughput improvement um, through our API. So we look at those sorts of things. We'll try and be cutting edge on, but otherwise it's pretty, pretty bland and reliable stuff in there. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's the whole thing is like, you don't want to innovate on these things. You want the, the, the easy wins and, and only change stuff that needs to be changing. I would only worry about these new techs when you're not being able to deliver on the goals you want to get to. Absolutely. Or I always ask the question, does the customer care? Yeah. Right. No, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't. Will the customer be able to tell if we implement a container strategy? <laughs> well, that, that, that's right. We, there's, there's, there's very good reasons for when you need it. But, you know, um, I'm not particularly choosing various websites that I use because of how they manage their um, their compute clusters. Yeah. No, it's, yep. it's plumbing. It's all internal. If it did show, there's something wrong. <laughs> that's right. You might have a slight security vulnerability in that code base if it's visible to everyone. <laughs> Yeah, no <laughs> how your servers are operating. Yeah, yeah which I, I find in interesting. There's some new stuff coming. Uh, it's actually not that new, but nobody really supports it around server timings being streamed down to the browser. Um, and so uh, this is you. You may be aware of like the perform performance API spec, and that's where uh, you get things like how long was spent on DNS, SSL handshakes, um, you know, latency, whatnot, and it breaks it all down. That's super helpful. Um, but there's a, a new server timings um, specification where you can send data down, which would include things like how long was spent doing the data fetching, how much was on code execution. And you can you can choose what you put into these. And I've always thought that, that was super interesting because on the one hand, to a developer, it'd be really handy in my dev tools, uh, browser dev tools, to be able to just sort of go, well, where did the time go in there? Um, but I'm also kind of mildly skeptical of leaking that information off to anybody that hits the website. Um, yeah, seems yeah. odd. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, server timings has been in the W3C spec for a while. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but I know talking to security folks over on the run as side that there were a group of, of uh, gray hats that were using it to detect passwords that succeeded and failed because the timings were different. Right. Yeah. It's like that classic, classic one of, uh, you know, do when somebody uh, tries to log in as well um, and, you don't necessarily want to disclose that the email address matched, but the password didn't. You right. Know, um, and that could have a very obvious timing difference uh, yep. because obviously if the record comes back for the email address and then you're you're doing the, the follow-on authentication checks, that could be noticeable. Yeah. So any tool you can use to help discriminate those detailed times represents a potential security risk. It's very interesting to think those ways. I'll, I'll, you know, those security people, they think terrible ways. <laughs> the <laughs> kinds of problems that they worry about and the way they think about it. It's like, guys, I just wanted to know how long the DNS took to do the lookup. And you turn it into this horrible thing. <laughs> you know, in fairness, though, I think when, when you review code, uh, it's it's a little unfair just to, to plaster that on the security people. I think devs are also pretty good at coming up with some crazy crazy things um that they that they do and in fact sometimes you know i feel like some of the, the weird ideas i have about business come from the fact that as an engineer you kind of sit there and go okay my goal is to get from here to there what are the possible ways i could do this and you know <laughs> some of them are remarkably stupid um and but yeah they they could they can be very uh you know maybe illegal <laughs> yeah i'm still a big fan of web page tests you know just in yeah. and they they're pretty good at inserting into the into the continuous deployment line where as soon as you push it up, you run a bunch of pages and and you've got some metrics to work against. Like, do, you, do you see a, the combination of tools that way? Yeah, I, I do. Um, so I would, you know, put that under the, the hat of synthetic testing. So that's, you know, web page test is an amazing tool. We've used it for years ourselves. Um, the, the, the risk with not risk because uh, that they're, they're just different things right the, the real yeah. and real user monitoring is to say well you know I, I ran this test and you can try and adjust things like network uh, connectivity and you can set some different locations um, but that's different to um, you know this person was at home they're using this crappy router they've got this internet connection in this place and they've you know they've got an out-of-date computer or something like that and this was their the real user's load time. And often there's a fairly big discrepancy between what a synthetic check is saying versus what a, what a user is actually experiencing. Yeah. Um, they both have a place, though, because obviously a web page test run or a synthetic test run gives you a good baseline. So like you say, in a CI/CD environment, is it better or worse than what it came back with last time? Yeah, is it great for A-B bad? testing. Absolutely. So they have a place, um, but equally... I wouldn't solely, and obviously I'm biased on this, but I wouldn't solely rely on um, on a synthetic test telling me how my users were finding things. Yeah. They, it's better to actually measure the users. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the other one that I see is a changing um, uh, in the entire monitoring space. There are some really giant players out there that still more or less just give you averages, right? And hmm. that's... That's so misleading. It's ridiculous. I always use the analogy, you know, Bill Gates wanders into a Starbucks to grab a coffee and on average, everybody at Starbucks is a billionaire. Um, <laughs> that's clearly <laughs> a bad way to look at it, right? Um, it's true. So, yeah, it's true. But that's why you actually need – well, then you can also say, well, let's say, let's say there was – 
let's say it was worth a hundred billion today. Say there was a hundred people in there and they averaged one billion. You literally yeah. may not have anybody that actually exhibits the average. So that it's yeah. not only that it's misleading, but it can be an utter lie <laughs> in that you think somebody experiences that. You're like, nope. That scenario, it is an utter lie because there's one guy who has much more money than that and everybody else has much less. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's where I'm I'm excited seeing in, uh, across the board more of these sort of saying, hey, look, here's the histogram. Here is the medians. Here's the P99s, um, things like that to, to really help people understand what is the distribution uh, in there um, to, to make better, more informed decisions. Uh, the challenge, of course, with that is at scale, uh, things like medians. OK, well, you have to order everything and find the midpoint. Um, and there's a bunch of research going on in particular around histograms and being able to find those uh, percentiles fast, um, you know, kind of like close approximations, bloom filters, things like that, same sort of theory of how do we do fast approximated histograms to not make this uh, almost punitive to, to try and calculate for people. Um, but it gives you much better, better answers. So that's a great thing to see. What's next for you, uh, JD? Where are you going with this? Well, so we we've got these products and they continue to grow and that's that's awesome. We we continue to improve uh, the the products themselves uh, to provide more. Really, our goal is just to try and make everybody else's software run better. You know, how do we how do we make it so that it's a great experience? Uh, you touched on it earlier, Richard, about you know those those sorts of people that just want to make everything efficient. You know, and they'll sit there yeah. and um, bit fiddle. I'm that guy, Richard. I'm that guy. <laughs> you know, there's treatments I, uh, for this, right? There's therapy. <laughs> well, I actually bought a book a, a little while ago. If, if anybody's in, interested, um, it was Michael Abrash's uh, graphics programming black book, special edition from the mid nineties. Hmm. And it starts out talking about how in, in today's world of um, high end four, eight, sixes and Pentiums, is there really a need to think about performance anymore? Um, <laughs> 1997 book. that book is more than 20 years old yeah <laughs> but yeah so if anybody is interested in that sort of stuff i'd highly recommend trying to find that book on online it will be secondhand there is actually a free digital version of it now in pdf form it's a great read so uh, awesome. if you like me and you like efficient stuff check it out jd and richard thanks very much for being on the show <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned so much just listening to you guys, but I really didn't feel qualified to jump in. But um, oh, geeking about tuning, totally cool. Thank you so much, JD. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. We'll see you next time on you know what dot net rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code.
See you next time. Transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a talk.